This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 133 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show. A few of our favorites. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Our title sponsor is Omega Alpha. You can find them at omegaalpha.ca. This episode is also sponsored by Equestrian Collections. You can visit them at equestriancollections.com. Plus, Uncle Jimmy's. And you can find them, of course, at uncle-jimmy's.com. This is Glenn the Geek. And this is Helena B. And you're listening to the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. Well, howdy, Helena. Howdy. How are you? Okay. Is the weather broken? Are you out riding your pony yet? I'm not out riding my pony because it's 16 degrees right now. What? Yeah. It's, uh, we're having a little cold snap here in the spring. It's, the high today is going to be 27. Oh, I'm so glad now. See, you know, we had a cold winter, too. So, matter of fact, sometimes this winter in Lexington, Kentucky, we were colder than you were. But but our spring comes much sooner. It's true. And and it's, what are you, in the 50s today? Yeah, we're in the 50s. It's sunny. It's beautiful out, actually. Yeah, yeah. We're not expecting, the. we're expecting high 40s, maybe low 50s on the weekend. So I think this may be the last of the cold snaps. But um, what I'm doing today, or actually tomorrow, they, we've had, like, mud horrible mud for the last two weeks. So I've been waiting for the ground to freeze and harden so that I can get a dump truck in here and have my manure pile removed. Oh, so you, you, you're a stacker, huh? Well, we had to be because we got a little behind the eight ball with composting because of the snow and a couple of other things. Our, our muck pile started with uh, more than just muck. By the muck. way, as they always do. <laughs> I, know. I know. Anyway, our neighbor's got all kinds of... Our neighbor's a fellow who built our barn as well, so he's got all kinds of really cool boy toys, like dump trucks and, you know, bulldozers and stuff. So he's going to come over tomorrow and get rid of uh, my muck pile. Oh, cool. And so I'm glad. I'm happy that it's 27 degrees because the ground is hard enough where he won't chew up our field because you have to drive through the field in order to get to our muck pile. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, and that is a problem. This matter of fact, uh, where we keep our horses, she, they were dragging some round bales out to the fields with their four-wheel drive, big Ford, four-wheel drive pickup truck, yeah. and they got the four-wheel drive pickup truck stuck in the mud. Oh. I had to get a big tractor out to pull the four-wheel drive out. It was stuck Honestly, to... the mud will take anything. I don't I know. care if you've got four-wheel drive, all-wheel <laughs> drive. There, it, nothing is a match for mud. It was all the way up to the axles. So, Ooh. yeah, so that's some serious mud. You're right. It's it's that mud time of year. But I'll tell you what, it's this rain in the spring here in Lexington that brings the beautiful grass we have. So you, There is a different smell in the air, I have to say, even though it's cold. In, even yesterday, which was in the 30s, there is, I can't tell you what it is, but there is a smell that's different. Oh, you says, mean it's just not stinky fish from the ocean like usual? <laughs> not stinky fish <laughs> fish are not supposed to stink by the way especially yeah well, why do oceans always smell like dead rotting fish <laughs> it's not dead rotting fish it's something else oh okay <laughs> dead <rotting> fish. <laughs> i think you'd find that more in the back streets of manhattan somewhere <laughs> by the way in case uh for the non-regular listeners helena lives about a mile from the ocean which is why i said that <laughs> and it does not smell like dead stinky fish trust me <laughs> All right, so we have some pretty cool stuff today. Um, we're going way back, aren't we? We're dipping into the archives. Yeah, well, I, I do want to say we promised last week that we would have the Horse Husbands episode this week, and I had some trouble getting the Horse Husbands all together at the same time, so we postponed that a week, and we're going to do that next week. They scattered uh, on purpose, uh, I think. I think so. I think they were all afraid of their wives is what it was. <laughs> um, but, you know, a, a friend of ours uh, that did it last year with us, we're, uh, Rick Bergeron and Rick and Michelle down there and. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I wanted him back on again this year, and yesterday when we were going to record the show, they had to put one of their horses down that's been fighting colic surgeries and everything that they've fought with here for the last six weeks. So it was a bad day for them, and I didn't want to put them through that, you know, on that day. So sure. so we postponed it till next week, and we got some great guests lined up, and, and so that'll be a lot of fun. So Lena and I said, well, what could we do this week? It was too late to really get a guest booked for the show, and I said, you know, Remember way back when, two years ago, oh, what, 133 episodes ago, 
Wow, we're going on three years. Two and a half years. We're going yeah. on three years, exactly. Yeah. So two and a half years ago when we did shows that nobody was listening, I said, let's each pick out our favorite guest interview and let's see if they stand the test of time by replaying them two and a half years later. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I went back in and started listening to some to very early episodes. And some of them don't t- stand the test of time because no. we t- they were very timely topics. Some um, of them I wanted to pick just because they had the best titles, like Poop Eating Worms. I know. <laughs> and how you could get arrested for riding an ugly horse. I wanted I, that one so bad. I know, I know. And I had the same issue. But then I came across one and I listened to it. And I went, oh, my God. First of all, I went, oh, my God, we were really good in that interview. <laughs> I don't know. We've, I, maybe we've gotten worse. I don't know. But that one was really good. And and he was really good. And so I picked out one of my favorites. And I know you you did the same. You picked out one of your favorites. Yes. Yep. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going we're gonna to play both of those favorites for you today. Uh, we're going to play part of each one of those. They were longer interviews, but then you could go back in our archives and actually listen to the rest of them. Um, and we'll explain that in a minute. But first, I wanted to talk to you about Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha Pharmaceuticals creates only natural health products. Their scientists, guided by Dr. Gordon Chang, formulate a wide variety of mainly herbal health products to address many equine health problems. You know, they, they, we, we got to see them at Ada, and Dr. Chang is one of the smartest, brightest guys I've ever talked to. He is so much fun to talk to about his, about his products and about his philosophies and about using all natural products for the horses. And they also have human products as well up there in Canada that they can sell in Canada that he uses that same high standard human quality for the horses. He doesn't cut the quality for the horses like some other companies do. So that's the human quality. That's what he uses. And that's why it's such good stuff. And they have so such a different variety of, of products that you can take a look at for your horses. And you want to go to omegaalpha.ca and you'll find the products that you need for your horses at prices you can afford, but they're all natural and they're quality. That's what you're going to want to take a look at at OmegaAlpha.ca. Well, Helena, my favorite, one of my favorites, actually, I had, I had several favorites, so yeah, it's hard to too. pick. Yeah, me too. It was hard to pick. Um, but after when I started listening to this interview again, I went, wow, this was a good interview, and he was a good interview. And that is the godfather of natural horsemanship. Uh, He's a veterinarian, author of many, many books, and his name is Dr. Robert Miller. And anybody that knows about natural horsemanship knows the name Dr. Robert Miller. He is one of the oldest, or one of the first that really started natural horsemanship. And he talks about that in this interview. But a couple things I, uh, I got out of this interview and why I wanted to have him on again. Why I wanted you to hear him again is because we did it. This was in episode nine. We might have had 15 listeners by episode nine, <laughs> not the tens of thousands we do now. And, and I just thought it was important that you hear what he had to say. He, he's very outspoken, very opinionated. And, of course, you hear that in this interview. And I think you're going to enjoy what he had to say. I think it's very, very interesting. And you remember we were so excited when we got him uh, to agree to come on the show. He's qualified to say what he has to say. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have opinions, but really don't have the qualifications or the credits behind those opinions. Uh, Dr. Miller has that. And I, I just, I love the way he articulated his opinions and his feelings. And, you know, he's, he's been around the block. He knows something. He wrote a few books um, from very, some very successful books in print training, Ranch and Ropin and a Doctrine, which is one of my favorites. And natural horsemanship explained. You know, he doesn't just go out there and start hawking natural horsemanship. He gives you an understanding of the science and the behavior, well, the behavioral science behind it. So uh, he's, I'm, I'm a fan. Cool. All right. Well, let's listen to part of the interview we did with Dr. Robert Miller. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this leads me into our first guest uh, today. Our first guest, and we're excited to have him, is considered the godfather of natural horsemanship. He is a veterinarian. He's an author of multiple books, including Imprint Training, Ranchin', Ropin', and Doctorin'. 
And his latest book is Natural Horsemanship Explained. Uh, He's someone who's really dedicated his life to this. He's been working with horses and solving problems as a colt starter, an equine uh, veterinarian for half a century. Not too many of us can say that. And as a breeder and trainer of horses and mules. I know he's, he's big into mules and he loves mules, which I do too, so that's great. He is one of the pioneers in the concept of natural horsemanship and has worked closely, closely with many of the world's top technicians. What he tends to do is provide the scientific reasons why their training methods work. So uh, let's welcome Dr. Robert Miller. Hi, Dr. Miller. We're glad to have you on today. Thank you. Hey, I wanted to, there's so much to cover on the subject of natural horsemanship, and we certainly don't have time for that in this hour program. So what I wanted today's show to be about is how natural horsemanship has changed in the last few years. Uh, But before we get into that, tell us what the term natural horsemanship means to you. This, uh, what I call revolution in horsemanship, uh, began in the late 70s when uh, Ray Hunt, took what he'd learned from Tom Dorrance to the public. And uh, he showed that uh, you can actually make a better living teaching people how to teach horses than you can teaching horses. And uh, others saw his success and uh, got on the bandwagon. Pat Pirelli, who was a young man at the time, said, I can do that. And Monty Roberts, who had been doing this sort of thing secretly, uh uh, went public with it. Uh, so uh, that's that's when it began. It was Pirelli who came up with the term natural horsemanship, and for want of a better name, uh, that seems to have been uh, widely adopted. It, it's been criticized uh, uh, by people saying, well, there's nothing natural about it. It's, uh, the only thing natural for a horse is not to be domesticated. Uh, but I think it's an appropriate term because the methods of uh, communication are what are natural to the horse, particularly the body language that's natural to the horse. And uh, uh, it's enabled us to train horses uh, and to get them to do what we want without the use of force and coercion and the infliction of pain. Right, right. And I, I I think that's an important point. And it is interesting to hear a little bit about the history about how that hall started way back when and how people were in the closet with their training methods at that point. <laughs> well, it was very common uh, in the past for trainers to keep their methods uh, uh, secret uh, to protect their their living, or that's what they thought they were doing. And, uh, for example, uh uh, in the uh, 1700s, uh, uh, Sullivan in Ireland, uh, the original horse whisperer, uh, would not allow anybody to watch what he was doing. He would lock himself in a barn with a, a problem horse, and uh, they heard him speaking softly, and so that's why they got the idea of the whisperer. But, of course, he was doing other things. Uh, with the horse, and then after a period of time, he came out, and the horse was completely changed in its behavior. But uh, he never—he uh, wouldn't even confess to the village priest what he was doing. He kept it secret. So this was rather common throughout the uh, history of the horse industry, but not always. There were people that uh, shared their information, either with a uh, a son, for example, or a protege. And there were a few that wrote it down, uh, going as far back as Xenophon and uh, two and a half thousand years ago. But since uh, the majority of the people working with horses were not educated or were often illiterate, uh, this information really never got widespread until, as I said, in the uh, last part of the 20th century. So you wrote an interesting article, Dr. Miller, in 2006 after the whole Barbaro incident talking about the fact that you're not opposed to racing or showing, but you also explained from a veterinary point of view that you are opposed to horses who are started too early, drugged too heavily, or altered for the show ring. And I found that a very fascinating article because I agree with with almost all of that. There's a lot of talk now about cleaning up some of these sports. Do you really think that it's going to happen, or is it just lip service? Well, yeah, I think it's like the natural horsemanship movement. The historical moment has to arrive. Uh, and uh, we may be, I think we may be approaching the historical mo- uh, moment. 
there's no question that, as I said, I'm not opposed to racing. I'm not opposed to the showing of horses. But the there's something in human nature that tends for us to exaggerate the things we do with horses almost to a grotesque standpoint. Well, uh, I, I would argue that, that that's not just with horses, the human nature exaggerated. Oh, part. absolutely. <laughs> uh, oh, no that's question about a, it. Look at our financial system. <laughs> we did the same thing there. Yeah, a year ago, I would have said, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in. No, there's no question about that. We do carry things to an extreme, and I think our culture is really inclined to do that way, to do too much too fast. That's one reason that we've achieved as much as we have, but there's also a downside to it. But we can take some of the most beautiful performance possible out of a horse, and then we uh, we exaggerate it to the point of grotesqueness. Uh, just to, for one example would be the Tennessee walking horse, an absolutely fantastic breed of horse. And we've taken those gates, and we've exaggerated to the point where they are, quote, grotesque. Uh, another example would be Western Pleasure. If you think about it, the Western horse is the cowboy horse. A cowboy would rather walk than ride one of those things. Uh, <laughs> but we we do this for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, is money. <laughs> one of the right. primary uh, motivators is money. And our natural competitiveness, too. I mean, it's if you take the competition out of horses, what motivation do you have to – to bring the bring these behaviors to their grotesqueness. I mean, what gets what, us to to those extremes? Well, that's you have to set a basis for uh, what is appropriate. Uh, right now, there's a lot going on with cross country. For example, they have made uh, some of the courses so difficult that they're uh, they're dangerous, both to the horse and to the rider. We've had people killed. Uh, is it necessary to go to that extreme? Uh, it's funny you bring it, that. It's funny you bring that up because that is our show next week. Is on eventing and uh, talking about the the meetings they've been having and what they plan to do to to clean that up. So it, it is funny that you just brought that up. Yeah, and we we do this, and this no breed is free of it, and no discipline. Uh, it, we. We see it everywhere, and as having been in the horse industry for so many, many years, uh, I, I see uh, a tendency to uh, for these things to get worse and worse until they reach a crisis point, and then something finally gets done about it. So, what's the uh, what's the crisis point? What is the crisis point? What, what's uh, it going to take for something to get done about it? I think we're well, almost there. <laughs> I think we're pretty much of, at a crisis. Uh, in many cases, I think so. Uh, when we see intra-articular drugs, drugs that are used to treat injuries that are caused by overwork and strain, and they're advertised and promoted as a supplement, like it's perfectly normal to inject these joints. You inject <laughs> these joints to keep them normal, not to, not to treat injury, but to keep them normal. Uh, this this is not acceptable, not not for, for me anyway. Too much to we ask too much of these horses. Uh, you know, when I was young, uh, and uh, I spent my summers uh, working on ranches and starting colts. What we called a colt was typically a four-year-old, uh, occasionally a five-year-old, sometimes as old as six starting colts. Now we're talking about under two years of age starting them that young, and we know from human orthopedics. Uh, we know the injury that occurs to these young athletes that are overworked. Yeah, they, and- pay for, they pay for it the rest of their life. The difference between the human is you can have uh, arthritic joints and still function as a human being. Right. But when a, horse, when a horse gets to that state, unless it happens to be a brood bear, it's, it's, it's all over. What do you think the, the optimal age is? Is it three years old to start? Is it four? Or does it depend on the horse? Well, there's nothing wrong with starting a two-year-old if you just plunk around on them. Uh, You can do a lot of good. But as I said, the tendency is to to compete on these animals and exaggerate. And 
unfortunately, it's it's all money driven. The breeders want to move those horses out to the market as fast as possible. The trainers know it's so much easier to start a two year old than a three or four year old. It's so much they're so much more submissive at that age. So the tra- it's it's to the trainer's advantage, uh, the agent's advantage. The uh, owners of the horse, they're in a big hurry to get into competition and start winning. And even the veterinary profession is profiting by the damage that's done to the uh, the uh, overuse of these young horses. Uh, well, it sounds like we, we have to get natural horsemanship to these people, to these levels of competition and to these owners and to these trainers. It, and you said it's going to take a revolution. How do we start the revolution? And then what do you think is going to be the best way – into the lives of these people, getting treating the whole horse, the natural well, well, techniques. It, How do we get there? It, it is happening. What we see is we wanted to see it happen overnight, and uh, it is happening. This this natural horsemanship movement uh, is, as you say, one of the reasons that it's going to change. Because what it's done, uh, if you'll think about the the top. Clinicians. There's only one or two of them that is involved in the showing of horses. Most of them, completely showing. Uh, there, what they teach is the relationship with the horse, and for many horse owners, that satisfies them. They don't need the ribbons. Uh, they don't need the uh, the ego satisfying uh, uh, wins. Uh, I've competed. My wife has competed, but uh, uh, not when it's going to uh, damage the horse. We think too much of our horses. We don't want to see them hurt. Now, you you did, a, I guess, your latest book, from what I understand, is Natural Horsemanship Explained. Tell us a little bit about what's different about that book than your other books. Well, the first book, a Revolution in Horsemanship, that, and that wasn't my first book, but that was the first one that we actually devoted to this natural horsemanship movement. Uh, I wrote that with co-author uh, Rick Lamb. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, it, it was basically, um, I think his orientation, and he contributed half the ch- uh, chapters, was basically the history of the movement. My personal motivation was to was to reach the people who were not involved or interested. First of all, there's still a small group that's never heard of it, although they're getting fewer all the time. Yeah, I think expos have helped that. Oh, absolutely. And then secondly, there are those that have heard of it but are disinterested. And thirdly, there are those who have heard of it and are actually opposed to it. And there's still quite a, a bit of that going on. I wanted to reach those people, and the message I hope that book would uh, uh, would give them is that if you don't get aboard this thing, you're going to be left behind uh, because it's better. It's better than what we've had in the past. Now, this sequel to it, uh, Natural Horsemanship Explained, I targeted a completely different audience. I'm targeting the convert, the believer, the including the clinician. I want them to understand why it works because if you understand why you remove the mysticism from it it's so much easier i've worked together with quite a few of these clinicians done clinics uh, together with uh, with uh, quite a number of them and i've i've had them make this comment to me you know listening to your part of this clinic is the first time i really understand why what i'm doing works they know it works and they know how to do it but they don't understand the scientific background basis to it and that that is what i decided uh 20 years ago was going to be my goal to uh, give it a scientific basis and, and to make it rational and to help people understand it and what's the core of the scientific basis? Is it behavior? Is it herd behavior? Is it evolution? Is it genetics? What is it? Uh, yes. The answer, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's the ge- genetic uh, behavior that is evolved in this particular species because each species, in order to adapt to the environment in which it finds itself, must adapt in three ways. Anatomically, its form. <laughs> Physiologically, its function and behavior. It takes all three to adapt to a given environment. And so the behavior is just as important as the anatomy and the physiology, and you have to understand that. 
And that's what natural horsemanship has done. It's taught us to talk to the horse in the horse's language, not in ours. Because our language as a species, you know, I did zoo work throughout my career as a veterinarian, and I worked with lots and lots of chips. Uh, who sadly are our closest relatives, nearly 99% of the same DNA. And in the primates, the large primates, orangs, chimps, gorillas, uh, and we are biologically speaking a, a, a primate, one of the large primates, what we see is a uh, tendency towards violence, intimidation, we strike, we kick, we hit, we throw, we shout. Uh, that comes, you see it in children. It comes naturally to us, and it's only a veneer of civilization that takes that away from us. So when humans started working with animals, first the dog, the first domestic animal, and then many, many, many thousands of years later, the horse, it was natural to use force. It comes to us naturally. We have to be taught not to use force, but to use psychology. And that's what this movement has done. And that's what makes us special as human beings, I think, is the ability to overcome our natural instincts and approach uh, working with other animals in a completely different way, one that is not natural to us. Exactly. That's and it's a, unique, it's a responsibility. Yes. We cannot ask the horse to assume human behavior. In fact, when it does, we've got what we call an outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> so it's up to us to learn how to – and that is not just happening in horses. It's happening in the dog world. It's hap In fact – Next week, I'm speaking to the American Association of Pet Dog Trainers, and believe it or not, what did they ask me to speak on? The revolution in horsemanship. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, and because, so, so I guess your answer to the question would be, in the last couple of years, it has exploded. It's exploded. It's all over the world, and it's in, the, in, in countries that you never would have thought it would reach. It's well into the third world now, and I communicate with people in, in the third world countries. Uh, it's going to take some time, but it's on its way because it's better. It works better. If you want to hear the rest of that interview with Dr. Miller, you just go to stablescoop.com. And you're gonna see you're gonna see a view all episodes button, and you can you can do that and go to episode nine, and you'll find the rest of that interview. If if you um, there's another way to do it too. Our search works really well on our website. So if you go to stablescoop.com and you just put in Miller, it'll bring up the show that he was on, and you can take a listen to the rest of that interview. It's just so fascinating to listen to him talk about about the different philosophies and how they've changed through the years. I, I just found it very fascinating. Yeah, he's not, just because he's been around doesn't mean he's not, uh, he doesn't have contemporary philosophies. You know, right. He understands what's current. Right. Which is really, you know, some people, and especially horse people, they learn something, they use a technique or they have a philosophy, and that's where they stay. You know, they never, they don't evolve as with time as horses and, and our relationship with them evolves. But uh, Dr. Miller has. Well, and, and to me, that makes him relevant today. Right. And, you know, we realize that uh, you're not going to agree with everything that all of our guests have to say. And that's okay. But you take, you know, you take what all of our, our guests have to say in the 900 and some episodes we've done here on the Horse Radio Network, and you put together your own philosophy, but, but you will be using, you know, little bits and pieces of what, what you've heard on the shows. And, you know, you may not agree with a couple of things he said in this, this interview, but, but you'll take them to heart and, you know, and, and you'll form your own opinions. And that's what, that's what the Horse Radio Network is all about, is allowing you the opportunity to hear them so you can form opinions based on what you hear. Yep, indeed. Well, uh, well before we get to yours, which I, I, I love your choice too, by the way, it, we wanted to talk about equestrian collections. That's that springtime of year when you're getting out everything that you put away before the winter, all your riding clothes, your spring sheets, and everything that you use for, you know, for, for the spring and summer. And you're looking at it going, you know, I said I was going to throw that away, and I never did, or it looks like crap, and I just can't wear that again. Well, there's one place you want to go to replace all that stuff for the spring, or you're just tired of it, and you want some new fashion. Well, you can find that at equestriancollections.com at a price you can afford. They have 
literally hundreds and hundreds of different companies that that you're going to everybody pretty much that makes horse stuff and horse clothing and people clothing (laughs) for horse people is there. It's all and and they have the fabulous 1824 collection for plus size women. Right. Yeah, uh, they and, should really they have everything there. If I need something, anything, Equestrian Collections is the first place I go. I go right to their search box and type in what I need. And ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time they have it. And I'm going to represent the men here by saying that they have one of the largest selections of men's stuff because men's stuff is sometimes hard to find. So you can find everything that you're going to need for the spring and summer at EquestrianCollections.com at a price you can afford. So check them out first when you're going shopping on the internet the next time, the next time you need that special something. All right. Tell us about why you picked uh, the interview that you picked for this uh, episode. Well, one of my favorite interviews was with Olympic silver medalist, Gina Miles. And well, part of why I picked it was because the interview was from 2008. So that was definitely, we were young and fresh and innocent. (laughs) We weren't jaded journalists like we are now. Just kidding. Um, but Gina, to me at the time, was a, a true heroine. She was a hero. She had gone to the Olympics in Beijing, and she had accomplished something that the United States really was having some trouble doing. And she she won the silver medal in eventing, in individual eventing. And But she didn't just kind of go there on some pre-made horse. Gina worked very hard for what she achieved there, and she worked hard for a very long time. Um, again, she wasn't; she's not one of those people who just sort of arrived on the horse scene and had these, you know, very expensive, well-qualified horses handed to her. She's the type of person who will help make the horse at that level. Do you know what I mean? I, I agree, and and this interview was right after she had gotten back from the Olympics, which was That's right. it was interesting. And when I w- went back and listened to it again today, I'd forgotten some of the stuff, and you know how excited it, she was. It yeah. was really cool. And and to hear about it, but it's not just it wasn't just about Gina, and that's one of the other things that made this one of my favorite interviews is that the the enthusiasm in her voice when she spoke about her horse McKinley was infectious. And he became a hero as well. So the pair of Gina Miles and McKinley was really, uh, you know, I, I could, if I were 13 years old, I would have posters up on my wall <laughs> of Gina Miles <laughs> and McKinley. So I thought this was a nice, um, a nice follow-up to her successes at the Olympics. And, uh, you know, just take a listen and you, you'll see why. She's very humble um, and just extremely talented. So take a listen and you'll see why. Eventing week. We've been looking forward to this so much because Helena and I are both partial to eventing. Uh, Helena, what's going on in today's show? I'm very excited for today's show. Our first guest today is silver medalist Gina Miles, and this was a fabulous interview. We talked to Gina a little bit about what life has been like since the Olympics, and uh, we've got some inside information on uh, her relationship with McKinley and, and how they ride and what's up next for them. And after that, we've got Joni Morris. Joni's the High Performance Communications Manager for the USEF, the United States Equestrian Federation. And she's going to talk to us about the safety changes in eventing, um, what's been done and what's coming up with that as well. Yeah, this has probably been one of the biggest years as far as changes for the rules in eventing in a very long time. So we're going to get caught up on that and try and try and get a handle, too, on whether they're done or there's more to come, what's coming down the pike as well. That's right. All right, and we wanted to thank our first uh, sponsor, and that's the Barnworks. It's a boutique marketing firm that caters to horse businesses uh, such as yourselves, such as stables, trainers, farms, and more. Let them help you build a website that can turn uh, visitors into new business, get you new clients, and save you tons of time in the process. With more than 15 years' experience in the corporate world and lots of hands-on horse experience, the Barnwork offers a unique combination of horse sense and business sense. These are horse people that build websites, so they know the horse customer. They know the kind of people that are going to be visiting your site. Definitely pay them a visit and see if they can help your website website develop more business for you you can visit them at thebarnworks.com or call 978-468-5167 that's thebarnworks.com or 978-468-5167 
All right. I think we should just get right to the interview that everybody's been waiting for. Our next guest has been riding since she was seven. She's had her heart set on eventing since the age of 11. She was an avid pony clubber. She graduated in HA, and she still helps out her pony club there in Central California. She has quite a list of accomplishments in her career as an eventer, including 2006. She was uh, Fairhill champ in 2006. She was also a Gold Cup champion in advanced. She, she also had the USEA Advanced Horse of the Year in 2006. In 2007, she did an individual bronze at the Pan American Games and also a team gold at the Pan American Games. She's had many firsts and events across the country and the world. And a couple weeks ago, she was silver medalist in the individual eventing at the 2008 Olympics in Hong Kong. And add to that a devoted wife and mother of two beautiful kids. Let's welcome Gina Miles. Hi, Gina. We appreciate you being on with us today. And I know you just got back from an interesting visit yesterday, didn't you? I did, yes. I I was able to go to the White House. Uh, The Olympic athletes, all the Olympic athletes, all the Paralympic athletes were invited by President Bush uh, to come to the White House, and he honored and recognized us there. So that was a great trip. What what did they do? What was all the athletes were brought in and in on buses and through a special security and onto the south lawn, and they had a chair set up there for us and a bleacher set up for all of us to take a picture there on the steps of the White House, up on the balcony, up on the stairs of the White House. So what a unique experience to be able to do that. Uh, President Bush had a, a nice a speech where he uh, talked about the Olympics and talked about um, uh, how special it was for us to have competed there at the Olympics and. So just a neat gathering and and a chance to actually see a bunch of the Olympians that uh, we haven't really seen some things. That sounds great. So other than being able to visit the White House, how else has your life changed since winning the silver medal in Beijing? Well, it certainly has been very busy. There have been, I had no idea that there would be so many uh, post-Olympic celebrations, and that, that has definitely been a surprise, and it has been very enjoyable, uh, but it certainly has, has been sort of a whirlwind as well. Uh, we also were invited to be on the Oprah show um, earlier last month to visit the state capitol in California as well uh, Universal Studios by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, and as well as lots of private local parties, a lot of celebrations, people in the community that are very excited about the Olympic medal. Um, The last celebration I was at last weekend, actually, I'm the first California rider to earn an uh, individual eventing medal, an eventing medal at all. So it's very exciting for California. So all of the California eventing enthusiasts um, are really enjoying this, this trip as much as I am. Well, it's very exciting for Gina, too. Yeah, Yeah, Oprah. (laughs) Uh, Oprah, hello. (laughs) Will you be on the We'll be on the Oprah show, or tell us a little bit more about about that. Um, Yeah, we will. You can catch a little glimpse if you know where to look. Of course, they have the equestrian (laughs) athletes. They have the equestrian athletes tucked away behind the water polo water polo guys who are quite tall. (laughs) But. but yeah, there's a little a little glimpse of us. None of the equestrians were interviewed, but I think Oprah missed a good opportunity there to interview us equestrians. But but uh, there are little glimpses of us. It, it was on her season premiere on uh, September eighth. Okay. Did you ever imagine twenty years ago when you were just starting riding that that you'd be here today? Um, well, of course, I always dreamed of it. You know, you have big dreams and, and big goals and big plans. Um, that it actually came to reality, no, is a little bit of a, a little bit of a surprise, a little of a, a dream come true. So we're still sort of trying to pinch ourselves back to reality. What's been the coolest thing since, since you got back? Uh, the coolest thing, um, just sharing my medal with everybody. You know, everybody has been just so excited to see an Olympic medal. A lot of people have said, oh, I've never seen an Olympic medal. And for them just to hold it and touch it and see it and see how much excitement and how much that means to people, uh, that's been pretty cool. Cool. So now what about McKinley? What's he been up to since the, since the Games? <laughs> He's been on a long vacation. He um, <laughs> had his shoes, his shoes pulled off. And uh, just been on vacation, on rest and, and recuperation, recovery. He is starting to get a little bored of his vacation, though. <laughs> so he is he is looking to, to go back and do something. He won't compete the rest of the year. But, um, but he is looking for a little bit more than just hanging out. Actually, McKinley is very interesting to me. I, I'm wondering what 
you would credit as the number one reason he's performed so consistently for you? I know there's so much that goes into your training, but what do you think is the number one reason he is just the superstar that he is and that you work so well together? Um, so, you know, it's the quality that when you look at horses that you can't necessarily, that you can't look for. I mean, horses either have the desire to compete or they don't. And he, he loves it. And that's what, um, his, his attitude about it, his, his attitude about going out and doing it, he wants to do it. And when you're talking about competing with horses at that elite level, you can't make them, that's for sure. And yeah, and you don't know. Some horses, you, you won't know when you look at 100 horses standing out there, which one really wants to go out there and be a competitor. Now, are you going to, do you have plans for him to make it to 2010, to the to the WAG? Um, I would love to ride him at the WAG in 2010. You know, he started his, his career off um, when he was eight years old at Rolex Kentucky, and, and we've been back to Kentucky many times since. And, and I think everybody that's ridden there knows what a special place it is and how special it is to compete there. So uh, we've been to the World Equestrian Games before, but to go to the WEG in Kentucky in our hometown would be would be absolutely incredible. Cool. Well, I'm, uh, we have no doubt you're going to do that, which leads me, you say it's so cool to ride here in Kentucky. I'm, I'm in Lexington. What, what is the coolest place you would say, what is the neatest place? You've been all over the place now. And, and how, how was the trip to Hong Kong more challenging or less challenging than going to England or the Pan Am Games or anything like that? Um, well, first of all, they did an amazing job at the Hong Kong Jockey Club there. They spared no expense and really put on a first-class competition. I mean, the, the facilities were amazing. They, they did such a good job. So that was a wonderful place to compete. Uh, one of the hard things about competing in an Olympic Games, is, though, is the host country is not used to hosting a type of an eventing competition. It's not like going to Rolex where they've got it like clockwork and right. everything runs perfectly organized and perfectly on schedule because they've been doing it for years. Um, you know, things change. You know, this ring is open from this time this day open. It's not open tomorrow. Or You know, the, the, the rules just keep changing. It's sort of a, a moving target. And that can be difficult. It can be you, your, your routines are broken up. Um, we, we, we had a certain time that we had to ride. We had to sign up for arenas. Obviously, trying to avoid the heat by riding early in the morning or late at night under light. So it changes your routine, and that, that can be a difficult way to compete under a different type of a routine. Um, so I noticed, I noticed that in your that you, you did uh, really neat, and people can still find it at milesaventing.com, your diary. Mm-hmm. Uh, your webmaster did a good job with the little book and everything, yeah. by the way. I thought that was really cute. Uh, and if anybody hasn't read it, it's interesting now that the games are over to go back and read it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I did that yesterday. It's interesting to read what what and it, you you talk about everything where you were in England and everything and before you led up to the games. But I know that's one of the things you mentioned is is trying to get a ring and riding at tw- you know eleven o'clock at night and exactly and all of that. Yeah, and all of that all of that adds a whole other dimension to competing in Olympic games. And whenever you compete in a foreign country, there's a certain element of that, of the unknown, of um, things are done a little bit differently. I can remember one year I competed at Varsaveld, uh, which is in in Holland, and and boy, talk about how hard that is. Nobody even speaks the language, so right. you're trying to figure out what you're what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to go, and and you don't even have um, the same language. So it does make you appreciate, um, you know, competing at home and competing in your home environment. But I think having had the opportunity to compete internationally, you you know to expect the unexpected, and so you're less you're less thrown by it because you know it's it's going to be different, and you'll have to be more flexible. Would you say then that that McKinley is less of a variable or a question mark than the environment because you know him so well and you know you guys know each other so well? Is he at all a variable in how in your success competing over the world or or is it more the yeah, environment? I mean- yeah, for sure, he is very consistent, uh, very reliable. You know that that certainly helps when you have a horse that you are pretty predictable in terms of how they're going to perform. Um, the one element that that has been a challenge for him is competing in front of large crowds. Um, the larger the crowd, the more atmosphere, the more environment. Um, in the dressage phase, at least, um, has tended to cause him to actually back off a, a little bit and get you know behind my leg and slow down and and. Um, lose his impulsion and which kind of got us into trouble at the Pan Am games uh in 2007 
but um, but we were we found some ways to cope with that this year, and, and that was our focus of our training program leading up to this, and, and we were able to, to tackle that this time. Is that because he's distracted or tense or excited? He's that's just the way he shows his nerves. You know, um, he goes internal. Some horses explode. You know, some horses that are, are nervous and affected by the environment will explode and 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 act out. And he just does exactly the opposite. He he goes internal and kind of implodes and is like, oh god, I don't know what's going on, and, and kind of <laughs> goes back that way. Now that leads me to the question that you know, we're talking about him. What is your biggest challenge? doing this sport what what do you what's the thing that you find the most difficult every you work really hard at this you have kids you have a life you have all of that stuff going on but everybody has that one thing that they really have to push themselves to do but it's just part of it yeah um well i know i struggled earlier when i when i first started eventing i think most of us come into eventing because we love the adrenaline and the rush of the cross-country phase and we don't necessarily love doing circles in the dressage arena. Um, so I think earlier, early on, when I started working with McKinley, actually, you know, I didn't love working on the dressage. It was sort of something that we had to do. But, but actually, because uh, McKinley was good at it, I, I did start to like the dressage just for, for itself. But I think early on, that's the part that I really had to uh, sort of, you know, work myself into to working on. Does anybody ride McKinley besides you? Um, I let everybody ride McKinley. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he, um, I love um, to let my pony club students, you know, get on him and have a ride on him and, and get an experience of, of, of what it's like to ride a horse like him. Um, uh, my son has had pony rides on him, walking around the arena, cooling him out, and my two-year-old daughter has been up on him and, and uh, walked around on him with me. So he's, he is very kind and, and shares himself with, with others. Oh, I feel like he's becoming a hero very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at seventeen three, and you're you're what five three? Do mm-hmm. you do you feel the difference in size? Does or does your size or his size have an impact, either positive or negative, on the way you ride him? Um. Well, it certainly has helped the fact that he is very rideable. Um, you know, I was a little apprehensive when I first started riding him at, at when he was five because he was so big. Um, but he doesn't ride big cross country. He went up through the four star level in a snaffle. Um, you know, I think we worked a lot on the trainability exercise, on on control and balance, and uh, lots of exercises to develop his ability to compress his stride. And and we didn't move him up too early. We we didn't move him up until he really had those foundations established. And so I think one of the keys to being able to, to manage such a big horse was we spent a lot of time in the beginning, you know, establishing those foundations. Um, that being said, because he's so big and the collection and engagement in the dressage is not natural for him, that's the part where, where actually I felt small on him. Well, you can listen to the rest of that interview. That was a portion of that interview with Gina Miles on episode 10 at StableScoop.com. Just look for episode 10 or search for Gina Miles in the search box and you'll find that. And you can take a listen to the rest of that interview. Uh, I think the reason that you picked Gina is because you can relate. She's all of about five three, yeah, and you're all of about five two and three quarters. So you see eye to eye, and I think that's kind of why you were partial to her. And she rides big horses. Too. I know she, she does. Big she horses, does. and she has kids. I mean, she does a little bit of everything. So I can imagine that you know she wakes up with a to do list every day that that would make most people sick to their stomachs. She's but, very relatable to the average horse per average horse woman in America. Yes. Yep. She she is. That's why I why I I say that they make or that she in particular makes a great heroine because she is she's real. She started from the ground up just like you know a lot of us are or have done. Um the other thing is this is and this is really new and exciting is that Gina has found a new horse that she's been competing at the upper levels with uh and that's Chanel who's an 8-year-old like the perfume uh, Yes, okay. an eight-year-old Danish mare, another biggie, 17 hands, um, who actually has the same kind of look and presence as McKinley. So uh, they actually, they're, they're doing quite well. They just came out um, from Galway Downs horse trials, and they had a fabulous dressage score of 28.6. So Ooh, yeah. that, no kidding. I know she came out of the gates banging. Um, so that got them first place in the prelim OPB, and 
uh, that was Chanel's first U.S. event. So I am really excited to keep an eye on them and see where they go. I'm I'm crossing my fingers for London 2012. And I think she was she qualified for the Pan Am Games coming up too. She's on a they're on a program for that. I don't okay. know that they're qualified, qualified. yet, but okay. um, that's I think that's something on her radar as well. All right, cool. Well, let's take a break for Uncle Jimmy's and talk about Uncle Jimmy's brand products. If you are looking for a horse treat for your horse, you just need Uncle Jimmy's. You don't need anything else. Just go to UncleJimmy's.com, Uncle-Jimmy's.com, or you'll find him in any of your local retail stores. I think Uncle Jimmy's is everywhere now. And his hanging balls are do a terrific job. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know what? He has other treats there, too. The squeezy buns are terrific for putting medicines in, and they come individually wrapped, so they're always fresh, and they're always squishy. So you just uh, you can mold those things right around medicines and give them to your horse. Or, you know, the hanging balls are fun because they relieve boredom. They just hang in your horse's stall, and the horses chew on them and, and lick on them, and, and they really like Uncle Jimmy's products. He has some some terrific stuff. If you go to his website, you'll see he has a fun website, too. He does. Um, yeah, well, it's then. a really fun website. And there's pictures of Uncle Jimmy on there. And, and if you picture yourself an Uncle Jimmy that's a horse guy that makes hanging balls, you will you will look at his picture on the website. You will go, that's exactly what I thought he'd look like. Yes. <laughs> Isn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he really, you know what? He may, the reason I think he makes such great products is because he really adores horses. He really, all his stuff comes from the heart. Yeah. He's had horses for years and years. He's competed for years. He's just a big mush. He's he is a, big a big mush. mush. Yeah. You know, he is. He leads, his leads his life with his heart first. And I think that's why uh, the horses love the stuff that come out of his company. And that's at uncle-jimmies.com. We appreciate you supporting our sponsors here at the Horse Radio Network. And if you use their products and like them, post on our Facebook page over at Stable Scoop. Look for Stable Scoop on Facebook. Post there that you actually use their products and you like them. And uh, we appreciate that. And I know the sponsors do, too. Well, you were talking about eventing with Gina Miles. And I got an email today that I'm trying to book for a Stable Scoop show here in the next couple of weeks. That they're doing the first. Um, t- oh, let me let me see if I. I'm trying to find an email, Helena. How about the first gated event? What? Yeah, this is. Uh, I'm looking for oh, it. Oh no! I'm looking for it. Here it is. I mean, not that a gated horses can event anyway, but I wonder what the parameters of this. It's called. It's called the three phase event. And it's taking gated horses and putting them through the eventing-type competition. So they're going to do uh, dressage, cross-country, and uh, uh, stadium jumping. Now, why wouldn't – I don't understand. Why is it necessary to have a specific gated horse? Because they don't do – you know, you got to remember gated horses need special dressage tests. Why? Uh, because they, they don't really canter as well as uh, – you know, they'll, they'll have uh, their gated steps in the dressage tests. And did you know that the United States mm. Dressage Federation has now rec- recognized gated dressage as a sport? I, I, I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know that, and that the, dressage formally discriminated against Well, because, because they can't do some of the movements that you would normally do in dressage. Um, uh, because, yeah. you know, they're, they're, because they're gated, you know. Um, so what, 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 what this is though, and the reason that I'm willing to cover it, as you know, I don't agree with the training method methods of some of the gated breeds and disciplines. No, not at all. But this group is the part of the group that's promoting the sound gated horses. They don't use the heavy shoes. They don't use those training methods. This is the natural gated. Okay. So that's the reason that, that uh, you know, I am all about supporting them. Just like with Ivory Pal and our friend Raphael and Ivory Pal being all natural, that's what this group is, and they won't let anybody in that isn't. So, I love that. So that's I love why that. I want to have them on, because I really do want to support them and their cause for, for you know, for ending, uh, you know, for ending that practice that's been going on for so well, many years. like Kai McLean says, there's a better way. Right. There's and, a better way. So and there's guys... more and more in this gated community that are joining this and getting away from the other, and that's what it takes. It just takes a movement. It takes momentum. And once that, you know, once this becomes the norm and that becomes the, the you know, the, the, the abnormal thing to do, it'll right. go away. 
You know that now I'm a little bit excited about this. So, so where will do we know where this first event is going to be? I, I have to get all the details. I'm not okay. sure, um, but I'm trying to get them now and uh, get that booked for a future stable scoop here coming up. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm psyched now. I'm a little excited. Let's let's find this out. Yeah, because apparently they're all natural trainers and they adhere to the they adhere to the USEF and the USDF equipment and training standards. Um, so does the USEF um, govern any of the gated horse competitions now? You know, I don't know the answer to that. All right. Well, if you're a gated horse really. person, give us a, a a shout out. Go to Facebook or send us an email. We'd like to hear what uh, what you know about this. Yeah, and then we'll, you know, we'll get them on and we'll talk about it. I just think it's kind of fun. So we have some fun shows coming up. We're going to be in the next couple of weeks. We have the Horse Husband show coming up next week. And then uh, we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking gypsies on one of our shows coming up, and gated horses. Just a whole bunch of different fun things. Yeah, Sonia Meyer's coming back. That was fabulous. Yeah, we had her on the on the morning show, and yeah. you and I interviewed her. She's uh, loved she's her. A fascinating woman, and there's an eventer out of England who is a Romani gypsy and worked her way up the hard way. Uh, grew up in a gypsy community and then became a international eventer. Uh, and she still struggles with finances and everything else because they're not a rich people. You know, she, she yeah. didn't come for money. And But what a sweetheart. You know, everything I've read about her, I just can't wait to have them both on the same show. I think that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Too. Yep. So we're gonna, we have a lot coming up yes. here. And, of course, you know, uh, we're going to have to plan something really big for our – let me figure this out. It'll be uh, – it's 52 times 3. What's that? That's 156th episode, which is going to be coming up and later in the fall. So we're going to have to plan a big party or something because that'll be our, our heading into four years of doing this. So that'll be our three-year anniversary? That'll be at the end of the third year. That'll All be right, our... So, well, why is one episode 156 so special? Because that's, the, that's 52 episodes times 3. Oh. Uh... <laughs> I'm sure I'll, figure, I'll figure 52 this out. 52 a year times three years. Yeah, but... Uh, but So then that'll be our fourth anniversary. We'll be well, starting what our fourth does year. The one, what day does that episode fall on? I don't... I can't figure that out in my head. Oh, oh, oh. So you're not doing it by year. <laughs> you're doing it just by... Actually, happy. let's look by year and see what that is. Oh, uh, I get it now. Okay. See, it does take me a few extra minutes. <laughs> I see. So that would be three years worth of episodes. That's correct. Three years okay. worth of episodes. Let's see, you though. See, people, this is how our life is when we're not... <laughs> recording okay glenn spews out some kind of math and i it takes me like a week to catch up <laughs> okay so i'm looking um august 8th 2008 was our first episode okay so, so this we, will be our three-year anniversary you're right in august beginning of august there like second week of august is when we should be celebrating all right so we're gonna have a pate did you know that on the first episode we didn't even have a player yet we didn't no, there's some odd player that I must have used just for one episode. Like, oh. we, we didn't know what the heck we were doing back then. No, we didn't. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. Wow. I bet there are 12 listeners that did. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, in August, we'll have to party. Okay. We'll figure something out. We're going to have to do something. We'll have to get together. Maybe we'll meet somewhere, and uh, we'll do the show from some special secret location. Yeah. Well, Under maybe we'll have a party here at the beach. We'll have a big oh, beach that, yeah, well, maybe we'll go to Rhode Island. Because you don't live in Massachusetts anymore, so I don't have to worry about that. Right, you can come visit. Because I you swore I'd visit. never go back to Massachusetts ever again in my life. Oh, and now that you don't, I don't have to worry about that. Nope. I like that. Well, can, can we set up the power at the beach? They have power at the beach. Come on, Glenn. Because then we could bring our recorders down there, and we could actually do the show from the beach. You know, um... Uh... Or we could do it from behind the poop pile in the backyard there. Yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> There's always power there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Don't forget to check out the rest of our shows at thehorseradionetwork.com, on horse, uh, at horseradionetwork.com. Don't forget the morning show. We do every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern at horsesinthemorning.com. And uh, you, you, you can go to our show notes for today's show at episode 133. Where we'll put links back to the past interviews that we did, or you can just go to our website and look them up for, for Dr. Miller and for Gina Miles. And we will work on getting Gina on here again soon for an update. And please, please, please go to Facebook and follow us. You can find us under Stable Scoop. 
You can also follow our tweets at Horse Radio. You, I'm, I've started tweeting now, and I noticed I got a tweet from you the other day. I almost I'm, fell over. I'm, 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 I'm getting a little addicted to it now, and I knew this was going to happen, which is why I put it off for so long. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Helena underscore B E E, and uh, you know, many thanks to our sponsors, Equestrian Collections. Uncle Jimmy's brand products and Omega Alpha. You can find them online as well. And we post link to our sponsor links to our sponsor pages at stablescoop.com. So if there's anything you're interested in, just go to stablescoop.com and click around. You're going to find everything you could ever want. And here is something to aspire to, Helena, and I'm going to leave everybody with this. There's another podcast I listen to and absolutely love because my wife and I just love Disney. We love uh, going to Disney World and and, uh, Magic Kingdom and Epcot and all of that. And there's a podcast I follow called Inside the Magic, which is all – it's one guy who does this podcast, been doing it for years, and it's all about Disney and Disney World. He lives near Disney World, and he he just gives you all the news every week about Disney. He plays music. It's a great podcast, well-produced. And he just posted two seconds ago on his Twitter, because you made me look now that you (laughs) mentioned Twitter – he says, just noticed in February, Inside the Magic podcast surpassed 6 million downloads. Oh, my gosh. And we have more weekly listeners than ever. So there is something we can aspire to. Okay, people, let's get busy. We'll <laughs> Start get downloading. Friends. Start hitting play. <laughs> All right. All right, Alina. Uh, that's about it for this week. That's enough. But we'll be back next week with more.